Welcome to another edition of On The Continent, your one-stop shop for everything to do with European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. And I'm Miguel Delaney. And I'm Lars Watson. On today's programme, which of the two English teams left in the draw is more likely to make it to the Champions League final, Chelsea or Man City? Did Bayern suck the best out of PSG? Do Chelsea have the freshest legs in the tournament, having rolled over Porto without busting a bead? And what difference will that make if the real Madrid turn up to Stamford Bridge? Also, with two state-sponsored clubs left in the draw, is the PSG model the future of football or a flag of convenience? And has the peach of the goals, in my opinion, in the quarters, made Gareth Southgate's mind up as to who gets to go to the Euros? So, first things first, Andy Brassel, the top brass, is not with us today, but it's a delight to have both Lash and Miguel with us. Uh, thank you both uh, for agreeing to come in and to bail the old Brassel out, as it were. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about, though. Uh, Miguel, first of all, this uh, I think it was a cracking series of games uh, that were the quarterfinals of the uh, Champions League. And we have to look at, first of all, Dortmund losing to Manchester City. A lot to talk about around that, not least to talk about their star striker as well. What did you make of the match? Uh, I felt, I mean, Dortmund gave a good account of themselves, but it was always, uh, especially when they're 1-0 up, it felt like they're pushing themselves to the very limits of their capability and form this season. And that's also why it felt like this was more, it, it, for, for City, it wasn't quite a battle against Dortmund. It was a battle against themselves and their own neuroses of the Champions League. Because you could kind of see the panic in their play before they got what was quite a fortuitous penalty from a kind of a mad Emre Chan decision. Um. And then as well as that, the, the transformation, especially once they got the second goal. Uh, and it, 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 it's why it was, I think, a hugely significant win for City in terms of kind of going for this Champions League. And that's nothing to do down Dortmund, but they obviously had a lot of problems this season. Uh, and ultimately, they were kind of borne out in the way it went, the tie went. I suppose, Lars, the, the way that you saw the, uh, Phil Foden celebrate his goal uh, with Pep Guardiola, you, you knew what it meant for them. Are Man City out of the quarterfinal hoodoo now, then, of the Champions League? Uh, I think it will have meant a lot to them psychologically. I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big skeptic of the concept of hoodoos, but I think mm. with Guardiola, you can't deny that there is a mental side of this, and he has. I think he referenced in an interview recently the sort of that they're all human beings in the end, and you can do everything perfectly according to your plan. But if those shots don't go in, yeah. then, then what can you do? Well, you can see in the celebrations. Yeah, and and that's always been the thing with Guardiola. His whole football is about trying to control the intangibles, about trying to you know lessen the number of random incidents that can hurt you in the game of controlling as much as possible. But still, in these games, the random incidents have tended to hurt them, and of course, it's a huge deal for them that that they didn't this time. But it's, it's entirely logical when they dominate these games as much as they do. You can say, yeah, it's a daft penalty for Emre Can to give away and the goal was a bit of a mistake by the goalkeeper. But these are the things that should logically happen when you spend as much time in the opposition box as City do. So this is how this game should have gone. But yeah, the mental side of it, you have to you have to acknowledge that that was a big thing. Talking of random things that can happen to you in the middle of a game, though, it's Dortmund that should be looking at that because, um, well, according to you, Blash, they've been playing rubbish all season. Well, rubbish is not the word, but they're a, very, they're, they're a ludicrous team, really. because they, <laughs> Ludicrous. They, was the word. Sorry, just, yeah, well, I've said they've been largely ludicrous this season, was my word in the group chat, because 
every single Dortmund game you watch, they'll do something good going forward because they have so many attacking players who are super exciting, but they do so many ridiculous things defensively. And my favorite example recently was the Stuttgart game at the weekend when they have an attacking throw in uh, way up in, in deep into Stuttgart's half, throwing gets taken and there's one bad pass and suddenly you have four Stuttgart players in on goal because like half of Dortmund's defense have just ran off for no reason. I mean, they do so many bizarre things defensively and, and they've done that throughout the season and I just never I knew they'd score against Man City because I think they've scored in something like 27 out of 28 games in the league I mean they almost always score but but you can you, you wouldn't trust that defence to keep Man City out yeah. under any circumstance yeah it would have been stretching credulity for them to keep a clean sheet in that game but I do want to just, just pick up on something you said there I do I mean obviously they have Matt Hummels but then he's always been kind of good for an error to be honest despite how good he is a defender yeah. but I do wonder whether some of that is a product of when your team just has so many young players in it that there is there isn't basically the more experienced heads to offer a bit more composure. I, I agree, but you also have to look at some of the experienced heads that are you, you bring in someone like Emre Chan because you're hoping he'll you know yeah. bring some calmness to proceedings. He's only twenty six, twenty seven. Yeah, well, he? but he's been around at the top <laughs> level for a long time, Forever. and he's just not really done that. And I, I think Axel Witzel is a big miss for them uh, as someone who's got a bit of a footballing head on his shoulders. Uh, he's obviously out with injury for a long time, but I also think Hummels is a good defender but I think he needs some legs around him for it to work really well and you look at someone like Akanji who hasn't developed quite the way you'd hoped and, and just they don't seem for that well organised I mean it, it, I think at some point it, it goes to at some point you have to look at the coaching and the culture of the club a little bit as well when there's these sort of sort of sort of mental sort of breakdowns that seem to happen defensively quite even in the first game the the Manchester City's winning goal like the 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 context is they have this great 1-1 result at Manchester in the bag right towards the end of the game and even in that situation, City are allowed to have a 2-0-1 on the back post because none of the defenders has clocked on to the yeah. fact that there's an extra City player there and you need to move in. They're, they're just, there's not the defensive sort of mindset, I think. And yeah, I think the idea was to bring in Hummels to, to help change that because he's a leader, he's a vocal guy. But it hasn't worked. I mean, they're yeah. still non- a nonsensical team defensively so often. And I guess that's the big one of the big jobs that Marco Rosa has when he's coming yeah. in and taking over. I, I suppose the thing as well, I mean, when... Uh, there are plenty of examples like with Chelsea being the main one of a club bringing in a stand-in manager who ends up winning the Champions League but it's, that's probably only possible at a super club when you're a club of Dortmund who are kind of a, a tier or two down from a club like Manchester City in resources it's stretching a bit to kind of be, try and overcome form and overcome kind of what you are as well in a game in a game like that eventually kind of reality will intercede and it might be a little bit to do with the characters you have in the dressing yeah. room uh, I, I think this is a team that as much as they're fun to watch you're probably not wrong about there just being too many young players mm. I mean if you're a situation where you have sort of four or five of them almost in your lineup, maybe that's too yeah. many what um, is it I mean and even like if we think of the kind of the great young teams of the past like the classic the classic kind of youth Ajax they had Rijkaard and Danny Blind mm. I mean you, you, you can't get to and, 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 and even like the De Boers are that bit older Manchester United the mid 90s they had what Cantona, Schmeichel Pallister, Bruce and even Keane who's never been a young player really in any sort of mental sense Yeah, <laughs> yeah like I'm not a, like a sort of big brain tactical analyst by any means but I do find watching Dortmund quite regularly as I do I very often just find myself shouting at the TV yeah. like what are you doing like where, where, where have you gone off to like why is this in the centre half where's where, where the right back gone like there's just so many weird odd yeah. things you see from the fence and I think all in all I thought they conducted themselves better in I, mean, I 
I, I thought they were going to get a hiding in one of yeah, these two legs. Right, yeah. uh, and, and I thought, honestly, I thought they did but, but, a bit better than I was expecting. But, but, but that's why I think the game was ultimately about City beating... Uh, battle against themselves rather than Dortmund yeah. because it, by any sort of logic really City should have won that quite comfortably which they did once they got ahead but um, but when it was in the balance it, it felt like City's own kind of neuroses about this competition were more influential than maybe what Dortmund did and Dortmund exploited that for a time It, it was Dortmund's younger players that catch or that caught the eye, yeah, uh, not least of the spectators, but also I suspect of the England manager when it comes to Jude Bellingham. And, you know, what a great goal he scored. So even though it's not the finished product, they're an exciting team or should be an exciting team to watch. Yeah, I mean, watching some of the coverage, I'm very tempted to put on my hipster hat and go, oh, wow, you've discovered that Jude Bellingham is good. <laughs> yeah, good I, I, I interviewed him in October. <laughs> this, 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 this is the thing. And, and in fairness to anyone who we want to accuse of being reactionary here, it is different doing it against Augsburg in the Bundesliga and doing it in a Champions League yeah. quarterfinal. Like it does put you on a slightly different uh, yeah. in terms of where you, how ready you are. But he is a remarkable player. And first, the obvious thing doesn't look seventeen. Like we watch him play, neither physically or with the calmness he has and the confidence he's got he a has. Football brain, yeah. And at seventeen, but, you know? if you, but if you even look at what type of player he is, he's got an unusual skill set because he's both someone who's a reliable ball winner. Like he, yeah. he can put in a challenge and he can muscle people off the ball and win the ball. But he's also really good at driving it forwards. Like some midfielders who are both like, pretty solid, chunky, you know, child who win challenges, but also transports the ball forwards on the yeah, pitch. Yeah. There aren't too many of them around. Like it's it's a very yeah. rare skill set he's got. I think I think he's England's most complete midfielder, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Just to, just as a slight tangent there, you mentioned Augsburg. I've heard that term, that that club a lot in these sort of discussions, and I do wonder, are Augsburg now to 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 portray the forgiving nature of the Bundesliga? Are they what what Stoke were? to display the supposed awkwardness of the Premier League. Oh. I, I think they're just my go-to team because it's the one that I have few that means the least. I don't yeah. remember any time you were worried about playing as Salzburg. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe Schalke should be the one we make fun of yeah. this season. Well, Schalke, them. yeah, traditionally big. <laughs> it was like, it's like, it was like the, it just recalls the famous uh, comment from Roy Keane to... Uh, the Yap Sam, I'm a curse actually. I mean, I'm quoting someone, so I should. You know. <laughs> <laughs> You're not playing fucking Willem Tway now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is the thing, and I think that with Bellingham, it does matter that he's done it in these games and been really good against Man City. It's not yeah. just because it was on the telly and a lot of people watched it. It matters because you've shown that against yeah. top quality opposition. Exactly. It's a Champions League quarterfinal. Yeah. There's no getting away from that. Yeah, and I think as much as I was. Um, when you see people have their sort of England draft squads for the Euros and Sancho's not in it, like obviously I want to tear my hair out because like, he's very obviously one of your best players. In fairness to them, he hasn't always looked great for England yeah. and maybe it doesn't help his cause that he's absent for, for, for games like this. I don't know. It's a very important point that you made though. If, if a young player can do the business in a really important match like this, uh, court finals of the Champions League, and the thing that impressed me with the Jude Bellingham goal was that he used the defender, the opposition defender, to mask his shot. Mm. Otherwise, the goalie may... Because the goalie almost got it, you know. Otherwise, the goalie may have reacted a a fraction of a moment sooner and actually gotten to the ball. But anyway, Miguel has nailed his mask firmly to the colour. Or his colours, so let me do it again. Miguel has clearly nailed his colours clearly to the mask by saying Jude Bellingham... You should never nail your mask to the colour. Well, no, you you can do it both ways. Yeah, but it's a harder prospect in that respect. But... He's saying that Jude, essentially, aren't you, Miguel? Saying that Jude Bellingham needs to be on that in that he squad will, will to be, the Euro. 
all, all, all going be. as expected. Yeah. Yeah. Squad, he will yeah, be. Think, yeah. yeah. And, and you agree with that? He should be in the. Yeah. No. Completely. Okay. Absolutely agree. I'm just checking. Just checking. What about the way that Pep Guardiola was in this match? Usually, you f- you get the feeling that he is the chess master, as as yeah. it were, Miguel. That he is controlling every single aspect of the game. You can see him on the touchline. No, no, move forward one inch. No, move back one inch. He's always micro managing his team. But here in this match, it seemed like. He'd give well, yeah. them a little bit more scope to. I thought he was frantic for, for a lot of for a lot of the game, like frantic. And, and Guardiola, as I mean, there are certain managers. I mean, certain managers, obviously, no matter what, are kind of zen-like or just always the same pose line. What you you basically you can read exactly the way a game is going from how Guardiola is in the sideline. Mm. I mean, I, I actually I watched up a few kind of friends last night when they were one 0 down and looked really bad for City at halftime. I, mean, I, I, I wonder what Guardiola's halftime team talk is going to be like. And someone responded basically, oh, probably a lot of grabbing players by the side of the head and shouting at them. <laughs> uh, but like he did, he, he was frantic. Nose uh, to nose, tip of the nose, yeah, yeah. tip of the nose, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then again, once they got ahead, suddenly that, that calm in his demeanour. And, and I think that again, that just shows... Not just what, not just what this meant to the club, which is obviously one side of it, but what the Champions League means to to Guardiola. It's something we've brought up on the pod before, but uh, I do think, and it's all more remarkable given he won it twice in his first three seasons. But I think he does have a huge complex about it. I think that is tied to the fact that he was a Barcelona supporter growing up, obviously, but at a time when. Barcelona had never won it when they suffered some ludicrous chokes in the competition that were kind of have been, I suppose, reminiscent of some of his own recent history. And when it was a trophy exclusively associated in Spain with Real Madrid, uh, I think they were the only team to, to club to win it at that point. Mm. Um, and because of all that, I think he, in the longer he's gone without winning it, the more it's become a thing for him and the more he's kind of made some of these unexpected decisions in it that are almost kind of, you know, classic law of unintended consequences stuff. Uh, and that it's why this this me I think genuinely this means more to him than it does to the club, even though the club are desperate to get on that platform. In the week that um, certainly in England the uh, coronavirus restrictions was lifted with regards to uh, unessential shops and so on, I get the feeling I get the feeling that this match of all the matches of the quarterfinals of the Champions League was something of a shop window, uh, particularly for. You know the the football directors of these clubs looking ahead to the summer when they're going to be doing their business and so on. Particularly with Holland, I think that I don't think we got as good a look of Holland here in England in the first leg of yeah. this quarterfinal as we did in this mm. second leg. Though he is a Norwegian genius, as you've said, of course, countless of times, Many large. times, yeah. But where's he going? I'm just t- taken aback by you calling Dortmund a non-essential shop. I mean, that's, that's, well, a, that's I, a dig. I, 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 I was talking about <laughs> the, 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 the non-essential yeah. shop of football. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, no, you're right. Um, I think obviously much has and will be made of the fact that he's gone a few games without scoring now, which we're not used to seeing from him. And one of the things I quite like about him as a viewer is that he's quite honest with his emotions on the field. Like he doesn't do much mm. to hide how he's feeling, uh, which I think is fine, but it maybe becomes an issue when the overwhelming emotion he is transmitting is frustration. Yeah, like yeah. He is a little bit frustrated at the moment. Uh, which there's, there's a bit of Cristiano there about that, isn't there? Just, For sure. There's yeah. a lot of Cristiano about the whole guy, really. Yeah. Um, um, but... And I think that that jars a little bit with the sort of jet-setting ways of his agent and and father at the moment. If you're a Dortmund fan, maybe that's not what you want to see. I think 
I mean, you've done a good piece on this, Miguel. A lot of his goals uh, so far in his careers have been from close, from tap-ins, from close mm. by. And he's someone who, as much as we see him as this big, strong force of nature, and he can score uh, good individual goals, the majority of his goals are as come after good team play. And it's his mm. movement in the box that stands out more than anything. And the fact that Dortmund aren't quite at their best at the moment, that, that impacts him. Uh, because if he's not getting that kind of service, I mean, I'm... I, I joked on social media the other day that, you know, he hasn't scored in a few games, but the last time I saw a Norwegian receive such poor service was the last time I was in a mid-range restaurant in Budapest. Um, which is a bit mean, but, you know, it's true. Um, and I think Holland is a player who, who thrives off of service and he's still making runs, he's still making himself available, but the ball didn't just, quite just didn't come to him. Yeah, but I mean, the, the thing about that, I mean, just as we discussed this, what I'm thinking is, you could actually understand Haaland's um, mindset here in that a player of his talent shouldn't be out of the Champions League for any extended period of time. And, and it's why, for all the talk of a Super League, it's why there is almost one by design because any top player, any player of worth, they just, they just can't countenance a, a single season outside of it. And, and it's why, ultimately, I mean, it's a product of a football system and it's unfair, but it's why it justifies his decision to want to leave now and as soon as possible. And it's why he'll probably go this summer. Yeah, although the uh, Dortmund uh, suits, you know, top chief exec or whatever says that they don't have to sell any of their players. Yeah, but I think they well, say that, but it's not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they really do. And yeah. it's also, it's not necessarily down to them because uh, Haaland sits at the very centre of something of a potential transfer merry-go-round but, this season. Yeah, this is it. I mean, basically, yeah, you're right. It, it's where he goes or what he does, his decision will dictate the entire summer. Because basically, obviously, there are, there are a score of clubs in from primarily Real Madrid and Manchester City with Barcelona a bit behind that. But ultimately, if they manage to get the finance together, I think that would be a surprise. Um, Manchester United obviously have long a long long-standing interest, but I'm told they have no chance of signing him for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and I suppose, but the thing about it is, whoever doesn't get Haaland... Uh, it's not uh, Chelsea. Actually, I should I should mention are interested mm. as as well and have some chance. I'm told, but whoever doesn't get Haaland, it's not just about them wanting a striker, but it's also about, I suppose the arms race and that if say whichever club gets him suddenly have supercharged their chances of, of doing something next season. Mm. So then it's about trying to match that. Um, so there's, there's obviously the obvious knock on effect in that. It, 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 whoever Holland picks, their rivals then have to go for somewhere else, which will bring I suppose Harry Kane into play. Then there's uh, Kylian Mbappe as well. Um, it, and so the entire summer, and also because of the fee involved and the kind of the knock-on effect of that as well, the financial effect, because basically if Haaland didn't move, it would mean there isn't that much financial movement in the market, which would mean I think it would be, be a much more sub subdued window. But if he does move, it just creates this, this, this there's so many effects from it. Everything hinges on his decision, basically. Yeah, so I've I've always looking at this it's an intriguing situation so I'm very very certain that their plan was not to move this summer I mean then then he's somewhere where he is playing all the time where he's the focal point of the team he's developing well I mean we mentioned he hasn't scored over the in these two legs but he's provided a very good assist in the first one and he held up the ball very well for the goal in the second leg and he's doing things he wasn't doing a year ago so he's developing very nicely as a player but he has said this he, he, he wants to play in the Champions League every year of his career and the thing about Dortmund missing out on the Champions League is not just that they're not playing in it it's what it means in terms of they have to sell players so yeah. for him it's the prospect of spending a year at a club with a new manager who's rebuilding 
And uh, that's a bit of a risk to take for him, even though the, tran- the transfer clause means he has more options next summer, probably. And he might, he'll, he would probably get a better deal financially if he went waited a year, because mm. next summer you can go. My my transfer fee is being artificially yeah, exactly, deflated yeah. by this by this uh, clause, so I can ask for more money. I mean, th- that's kind of how it works. Uh, but but I think for sporting reasons, uh, he might want to move this summer. Yeah. I think that, that that is being brought up. And to my mind, I always imagined that City is the only logical destination then because I struggle to see how the other ones can get the money but Real Madrid are funny like that they, yeah. tend, they tend to find ways of getting the money well, well from that perspective I mean Madrid the way it's been explained to me basically is that I mean Florentino Perez he can go to almost any bank in Spain explain that signing big stars is absolutely crucial to Real Madrid's business model so it's a, it's a sensible decision to open a credit line and, and that's how they're able to afford it and especially because because of the situation because of the clause next season uh, Dortmund aren't quite in the perfect bargaining position that you would, that they were, say, last season with uh, with, with Jaden Sancho. Um, I I I think I still think it's going to be Madrid. And mm. for, also, the other side of that is, I mean, there's two elements there. Um, from what I've spoken to people about, they I think they want a little bit of a nomadic career. Uh, that they want him to play in different leagues, a bit like Cristiano Ronaldo, and also they want a, a long a long lasting career. And the thinking is, if they go to the Premier League too soon, because of the intensity, the schedule, that might uh, that might affect him physically. And he's a player that picks up a lot of little muscle injuries. Yeah, you, so can, it, you can see that yeah. because he's a, a muscular guy, you know. Yeah, so and it, he uses that. It, it, and, could, it could suit to go to Spain earlier. Yeah. And, and then, of course, the other thing is, City are very then the way they have positioned themselves because of the clout. They're very much not a selling club. So if you go to City now, you're probably there for eight years. Yeah, that's a fair point. I'd throw into the mix as well is that he has a brother who basically had to give up on a serious football career at a young age because he picked up so many injuries that he couldn't, you know, get going with it. So maybe that's something they worry about a little bit more than I think other other young uh, stars probably worry about. I think that's a fair shout. I also feel he just seems like a better match for Real Madrid than Man City. I, I, I can see where he would fit in footballing-wise in terms of all the chances City create and having another striker who can just focus on scoring. And I think much has been made about Pep playing without a forward. I don't think that's a, an issue for them, but I, I do feel sometimes this team is is prone to coasting a little bit. You know, in the first game against Dortmund, you sense that they were so much in control that it's almost like sometimes there are games where they're so much in control they almost forget that they have to actually score the goals. Yeah. And I think having someone like Holland who's just a single single-minded guy who doesn't care about all these pretty passes. He wants to score as many goals as possible. I think that would be very good for this City team, but I'm not sure that's what Pep Guardiola wants. And I think when you have your pick of all the clubs in the world, going to a place where you're not entirely certain if the coach has you as his number one choice is maybe not ideal. And I just think mentality-wise... His sort of complete single-mindedness, I think, fits Real Madrid very well. Yeah. The whole culture of that club, I think he adds something they've missed a little bit since Cristiano Ronaldo went, even though Benzema's been playing really well. But someone who is that, you know, completely focused on scoring goals and and, and doing that, I, th- I think it's, I, I can just see it f- fitting really well. Tonight you became the youngest player in UEFA Champions League history to score a first-half hat-trick. How are you feeling right now? I feel very good. What's the secret? 17 goals now this season in nine games. To work hard. Let's move on to one of the other um, fixtures for the quarterfinal of the Champions League. I, I, in my view, this was the most eye-catching one. PSG versus Bayern um, ended, of course, with Bayern winning 1-0, but that didn't keep them in the Champions League at, at all. When I look at that fixture... 
I, I, I see it in the way that we've been talking about the arms race that you talked about a moment ago. PSG have got all the best players in that because Lewandowski wasn't in that match. Um, mm. David Alba, yeah, okay, fair enough. But not on the level. He's not on the level of killing Mbappe and um, Neymar on his day. And it felt like Neymar was getting a lot of service, didn't convert it as much, but it was an exciting player to watch. And Mbappe, just out of this world for this match, I don't think Bayern had much of a chance here, did they? Well, they had. They did create a lot of chances. Yeah, of and course I, I do have to say, I mean, if Lewandowski was there, it's probably a different story. But then equally, especially in the second leg, the amount of chances that PSG had. So, yeah. like, I, like I, I do, ch- I mean, we're going to get on to the kind of um, the wider issues and all the kind of the, the political context of, the, of this game and the and these clubs in a bit. But the, it, from from a purely football perspective and from that of the kind of players on the pitch, it was it did feel just a kind of a, a classic uh, European Cup tie between two good teams. Where when you actually break it down. It's actually hard to be too critical or or even too praiseworthy. Basically, just ultimately, two good teams played each other and <laughs> events happened. Yeah, I, 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 I don't mean to be simplistic about it, but that was almost the nature of it. Like, it's but it was tactically a very tricky yeah. proposition for Bayern because I mean they like to defend high up the pitch, and we saw yeah. in the first leg how that's a dangerous thing to do against Neymar. But now they didn't have a choice; they had to attack. Mm. And even with a slightly ropey looking back four who have they've, they've got annoyed with this on the like, let's not you know do other broadcasters down here, but on the commentary you kept hearing oh it's unusual to see Bayern carved open like this. It's not usual at yeah, all. Exactly. Like they, yeah, they're yeah. really sloppy defensively. They have been all year, uh, except in the Bundesliga they can put four past anyone, so it doesn't really matter. Matter. Yeah, yeah, but, but they concede chances is what they do because they play very high up the pitch. They don't always yeah. have that intensive pressure on the ball. Well, even going back to the eight-two, and I know like the, the final <laughs> score rendered ridiculous. But remember the first twenty minutes of that game, Barca cut through by three or four times, yeah. and like not that it could have gone the other way, but it could have been a bit more yeah. uncomfortable. For so, so, so that was there then, and, and I think Mbappe is is possibly the single worst player on the planet for Bayern to come up against because he is such a kryptonite to the way they like to play football and the way they've been dominant for the last couple of years because it's, it's really simplistic you know you have a guy who's that fast and that good a finisher mm. you have him just hanging on the shoulder of the last defender when they play push that high up it's always going to cause them trouble and you say they had a lot of chances PSG there were also a lot of situations where they were a couple of inches on the final ball away from having obvious chances as well yeah yeah absolutely so yeah. You, you kept thinking like PSG are going to score a few on the counter here so it was very tense from that that, that perspective uh, and it was a really enjoyable oh, yeah, yeah. it was a really enjoyable game and we'll get to it further in the pod I'm not sure it's a good development that it's ended up like this but it is at least fun to watch when these sort of domineering super clubs who are effectively not used to having to defend much in their domestic yeah. leagues when they come up against each other you get these sort of chaotic games that are tremendously fun yeah, to watch yeah, yeah. but they are because one of the teams uh, had an uphill battle because Bayern was already behind over the two fixtures after the first leg they're already behind mm. if um, as Lars says there because you have to score, because there's a lot of pressure on you uh, to take the ball by the horns and take the game to PSG, you're going to leave yourself open. So if you've already got problems in defence, as they've got, and they've got Mbappe, yeah. they're not, I, I, couldn't, it's not I good. couldn't see how that was going to work for Bayern. They needed a different strategy here, and I'm not sure what it was. I, I thought they got the balance right, to be fair, I have to say. I mean, the, the, But it didn't P, work for P, them. PSG's misses notwithstanding. But even to get into the position where the game was so 
brilliantly tense mm. uh, once they got that goal. And I mean, the weird thing about that goal as well, it felt against the run of play just because Neymar hit the bar twice. But in the spell, in the spell before that, Bayern had been all over PSG. Mm. Um, and we're talking about the final pass being not quite mm. right. I mean, I'm sure, again, if you want to do some serious video analysis and you go through the 90 minutes of that game and you stop it every time a Bayern winger has the ball in a really yeah. good position oh, and doesn't Sana, choose... Yeah, yeah Sana and, and, and Coman to an extent as well, just getting into good positions and just not picking the right pass, not picking the yeah. right moment to release the ball. These sort of little things that, yeah. that end up deciding it. And I do think, like to be fair to Bayern... They had 45 shots over the two legs. Usually, if you have 45 shots over two legs, you go through. Yeah. Uh, but especially when you usually have the best, you know, finished the best number nine probably still in the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they didn't have that. Uh, they had Eric Maxim Trupomoting, who isn't a, some sort of joke player, but he's not Lewandowski. Yeah. The, the, one, the one thing I have to say, I thought um, PSG's defensive trivot, especially uh, Danilo Pereira, uh, were absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard not to link that to the kind of resolve that Pochettino would be specifically trying to introduce to this team. Yeah. Uh, and it, and like they just feel a bit more a bit less feckless and, and self-indulgent. Can you uh, can you see the Pochettino effect? Uh, I think it's still from a little much. Can you? It, it's still a little bit hard given also like I don't think they play Pochettino football yet, which no. at Spurs would have been kind of like really high pressing. I mean some of the best performances I saw of Pochettino Spurs are when they just wouldn't let opposition teams out of their mm. the 30 yards around mm-hmm. their goal. Mm-hmm. I remember this one game they beat Watford 1-0 and afterwards uh, Kike Sanchez Flores said like he, he was like playing against I think he's referred to them as animals or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but like it was basically a 1-0 that should have, that was actually a 5-0. Yeah. Uh, so we haven't seen that yet, but I think we have we are beginning to see in Europe anyway a bit more of that kind of resolve that you would more associate with Pochettino. I do wonder if it's possible to play like that when you have Mbappe and Neymar. Yeah, exactly. you, do, you don't want them spending all their energy herring around. You probably can't convince them to do it either. Mm. So you're going to have to do it a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, I, I was very impressed with Danilo. And I think one of the things I noticed, when a team play spends as much time in the final third as Bayern does and as much time in the box as Bayern does you have to be really careful not to concede penalties like it's so know, easy yeah, to yeah. like you got to sort there were so many interventions from Danilo where I thought he did really well just not to foul anyone because <laughs> <laughs> you can so easily like uh, go down that route one thing I think was an issue for Bayern and has been an issue for Bayern all year is the the transfer window they probably had to have for financial reasons, but the fact that they ended up going so cut rate with their squad players, yeah. you know, buying uh, your Bunasars and your Mark Rocca and Chupamoting and these guys, I, I think it's maybe not what Hansi Flick wanted. And they're a very thin squad. Like yeah, their first yeah. 11 is very strong. They have a couple of good backups, but a couple of injuries and the drop off in quality is quite dramatic. Yeah, and if yeah. they had a better backup option at centre forward, I, I think not but, but that's almost a Harry Kane problem as well now, when you have one number nine that plays so often yeah. and, and and because it's a fixed number nine you don't have the same variability up front that you, it's just harder to get yeah. a second option and I think the thing that was bad luck for them is that I mean uh, Serge Gnabry has been playing as a centre forward mm. for Germany recently but then he got he was yeah. unavailable as well for this one so one of the wingers who could have done it wasn't there yeah. I'm glad you brought in Germany there because of course they'll be in the Euros as well and uh, I, I wonder to what extent uh, this defeat by PSG uh, from Germany's premier team by Munich will have an impact there on who goes to the Euros. And obviously, we're also talking now that about Bayern Munich concentrating on the Bundesliga. That, that, that's, the, that's the only way they're going to save their season, really, I don't think. Uh, and it's pretty much confirmed, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have to have a pretty weird collapse yeah. for it to, to not be... And I also think 
obviously a lot of maybe if they'd have won Hansi Flick might have felt okay I have stronger cards now and it might be possible for me to, to get the club to yeah. bend to me rather than the other way around yeah. uh, but the fact they've gone out now and he has a long standing you know disagreements with the sporting director Hasan Salimicic I think it's very hard to imagine him continuing there and yeah. the very, very obvious move is that he'll go and take over Germany after the Euros Cavi Moreno bene Shevchenko nello spazio va via Shevchenko accelera salta tutti Shevchenko cerca la conclusione Now, gentlemen, you're going to have to, you know, an old time like me, you're going to have to explain the, the grammar of a verb that I've never come across. What is it to sports wash? Well, well, essentially, it's using sport, in this case, football, or in this case, two specific clubs, to, I suppose, <laughs> make the image of your country or your state or your emirate uh, more palatable. And it's about integrating into the West, being able to do business uh, in the West without uncomfortable questions being asked or to the same degree about your human rights record. And by that, by that extension, or sorry, from extension, extension from that, uh, the purchases of Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain have worked spectacularly with that never more proved uh, by, by, by this week. I mean, Lars referenced it there about how fun the Paris Saint-Germain game was to watch. And it was something I, I, I did feel guilty almost watching the game. It was, it was something that occurred to me. Basically, Am I being sports washed here? I mean, given given the purpose of these purchases, um, well, I, I, how, how often did you think about you know human rights issues in Abu Dhabi or Qatar? As well, it feels like the Qatar one is more relevant because of the nature of that game. As and also because that's where the World Cup is going to be in a yeah, couple of years' time. Yeah, know? so I find this uh, a challenging discussion to have because we very much live in a sort of uh, mm. in, in a sort of north northern European media bubble. Yeah, where w- the reporting that we read on these issues might be different to the things they put emphasis on in different parts of the world. I definitely think, certainly where I'm from in Norway. Uh, if the object of getting the World Cup to Qatar, for instance, was to launder their image, that has mass- massively backfired because there's been so much emphasis on on wrongdoing. And I, I, I suspect if you polled people in my home country, sort of who's the worst sort of human rights abusers in the Gulf, a lot mm. of them would say Qatar because there's been so, so much, much focus on it, on it yeah. uh, which I think if you ask human rights experts is not correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, some people so, would so, say Saudi Arabia. Exactly right. This week in the news, uh, the revelation uh, that uh, the the Saudi strongman, if you like, the most controversial, Mohammed bin Salman, had been in some kind of consultation with the British government over buying Newcastle, yeah. uh, which would have, I imagine, fallen into the, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, of this sports well, uh, watching. That, that was a sports watching exercise. And yeah, all, yeah. I mean, that, that, that story by Craig Hope in the Mail, it basically kind of just completely uh, undercut the, the ludicrous notion that PIF, the Public Investment Fund, that we're going to buy eighty percent of Newcastle, they were some way separate from the Saudi state, which is always ridiculous uh, and kind of. I mean, it completely undercuts a lot of um, debates uh, for the takeover. But yeah, w- what they were doing, uh, what sorry, what what Saudi Arabia wanted to do was basically it was pursuing the Abu Dhabi model with Manchester City and Qatari model with. Um, with PSG. Uh, with PSG, but but I think you're right, Lars, and that we we can get confused by the bull. But but that's also why I think sports washing really works spectacularly because uh, the, the only the, I mean even even our, our perception. But we're in a media bubble. We're obviously we've been working on these issues. We're reading a lot about these issues, mm. 
and we still, and it still represents a very, very narrow um, band of people who invested in football who are anyway, you know, invested in the in these issues. A lot of people just don't yeah. care. It doesn't permeate. I mean, when, when when Manchester City are running away with the champion, or even in the, even in the meet, like the TV discussions mm. around these games, how often does this come up? I, I, and I do think it's a bit of a dereliction of duty for media yep. to not discuss this. Um, what, like, what, what is the purpose of this? Especially given, I mean, I'm, I'm embarking on a bit of a rant here, but the, I, I mean, what we're actually seeing right now and why this Manchester City Paris Saint-Germain semi-final is so significant and so symbolic, it's almost like the under-the-radar takeover of football. And, you know, we've been discussing transfers and all that. And I've I've said this on the show before, but what, one of the one of the main motivations behind the, the Neymar signing was basically was not just signing a great player from a rival. It was also because Paris Saint Germain's Qatari owners knew that if they drove up football fees and wages to a certain point, it basically, as financial people have said to me, short squeezing the market, they knew only a handful of clubs could compete. That was Manchester City, who are Abu Dhabi owned, um, Manchester United, Chelsea and maybe one or two others or whoever is eventually bought by Saudi Arabia. So what you have here is basically the, the takeover of the top end of football by some of the most questionable states in the world for purposes that are not to do with the benefit of the game and are going to have a huge influence on the game. And I mean, we're already seeing it in France with Paris Saint-Germain's dominance. It's possible we could have Manchester City doing similar in, in, in England, especially if they win a quadruple this season to follow from the treble two years ago. And I... I, I that's why I do. You do. There's a guilt almost watching these games, and a question of how often we should be thinking about these issues. And interestingly, if the states in question were different, for example, if the Chinese had taken over uh, an English club or a French club, a European club, in the way uh, that the Abu Dhabians and uh, the Qatarians have, I'm not sure whether the governments would stand back and just allow... For example, the, the, the comment that Miguel made a moment or two ago mm. about uh, the separation of mm. well, the I mean, people who are buying Newcastle from the state itself. Yeah. The, the British government would have none of that in terms of China. Well, I think they would. Like, I mean, you, you reckon? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there is. And also, if China bought a club, well, I think we'd have, exi- we'd have exactly the same discussions. Mm. Uh, and, you, and I suppose... You could extend that to the, to the USA, given some, but ultimately the USA aren't buying clubs for sports washing, and some some of the owners aren't linked. They're to buying the state it for profit. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, the, the owners aren't linked to the state in the same mm-hmm. way, sure. even though they're quite. They're, I mean, like the, the, the Glazers are basically Trump supporters, but as a. As a yeah, you, you can have your political affiliation. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. different from but, uh, this. Yeah. As someone in human rights put to me, the Glazers aren't bombing Yemen. Yeah. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but but there is an. I mean, and this comes up a lot that we are in a world where. You know, just just in the network of, of politics, e- e- economy, society means, you know, the influence of states with usually questionable human rights records. It's inescapable. But you can still draw a line with football precisely because football clubs are supposed to be... You can set regulations in place to prevent this. Hmm. Uh, and, and precisely because football clubs... It, it, it's not just business. Football clubs have a community role. That's their primary role. They're social institutions. Um and yet, what has actually happened is they, they've just been allowed. Been, there's been a, a takeover of the game, basically facilitated, and it, it is usually frustrating. 
Well, I mean, the Harry Redknapp famously once said that, you know, the fans don't care. I mean, as long as the, the owner puts money in, you know, if the owner was Saddam Hussein, they'd be chanting, there's only one Saddam yeah. Hussein, he said once, and he's completely right. I'm not sure if they'd be chanting that, but he does have a point in the, the affiliation. <laughs> I'm genuinely not sure they'd be chanting that, but the affiliation. Well, I mean, really, really like, look at what happens in Manchester City. Not. Look at what happens in Manchester City. Yeah. And, look, and look at the response Anytime anyone brings up human rights gets. It's 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 actually remarkable. It's it's <laughs> Yeah. Like, but like people think, well, like, I mean, it's more specific. It's, it's Sheikh Mansour, and with Manchester City, there's a bit double thing. Oh, it's not, it's not the state that owns it. It's Sheikh Mansour, and he's a private investor. When no, he's just an extension. Of that. He's part of the royal family. He's I know co- this might not be a good comparison, but white man in Hammersmith Palais, the clash, crucial line in that. If Adolf Hitler drew up today, they'd send a limousine anyway. I'm not saying it's connected. I'm just telling you. Uh, but the fans' association with the club is with the club, not with the owner. It's with the club, those people who wear the jersey, Mm. the players that go on the pitch for the 90 minutes. So I can understand that fans not necessarily turn a blind eye, but that that spectacle of what's happening in Abu Dhabi or Qatar doesn't permeate into the fans' experience when they watch the team on the terraces. But it's hard to separate it when the club has... I mean, the players are there because of the club's financial pulling power. That's the main reason they're at any given club. That's that's the same for City as it is for Leighton Orient. You know, it's living and you go there to earn money. And if that money is there because the club is being used to market a very questionable regime... How can you not ask the question? How can that? How can you well, separate but, that? But, it's but, very but, difficult. But this is also—it's the insidious nature of sports washing, and what it's actually doing is precisely banking on fans' emotional investment to create all this. And I, and I do have a lot of sympathy for fans, and, I, and there are plenty of fans who who wrestle with it. But I think, especially when you've grown up with a club, it, it is basically impossible to psychologically mm-hmm. disentangle yourself mm-hmm. from your connection. So I do, I do have a lot of sympathy from that regard. But that's but that still shouldn't extend to defence of what the owners are, especially not when, as soon as the owners do something you don't like, fans will, will take up, I mean, you only have to look at the history of Manchester City with Peter Swales or United with the Glazers. The owners aren't the club, right? They, okay, they, they, they currently own it in a very literal sense, but but owners are still only ever passing through. They aren't, they aren't the identity of the club. They aren't, they aren't the core of the club. What about what difference it makes to the actual game? Uh, because all this money has come in from wherever uh, to support teams like PSG, Man City, the teams at the top of their the, the European game in any case. Has it made a positive? And, and I know we're not trying to sort of detach the politics from the game, but if you look at just the game last well, well, has well, it made well, a positive? Sorry, Miguel. Well, it's not positive because what we're seeing is actually the, the increased... Um, financial disparity of football. That is a very bad thing. People go on about lifting the level. How can it lift the level from anyone else if you can't financially complete? And also, you're not like inventing new players by pouring more money into it. The players are the same. The player base are the same. Kylian Mbappe would still have been an amazing player if he wasn't at a Qatari-owned PSG. He would just be at a different football club. The, 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 The only issue is, is that just by and Jared Gilroy in Ireland made a, a news talk made a good point about this. When you are bringing so many stars together and bringing the best staff because because you can afford them, you will just by definition reach a higher level of football, but well, that is well, that is good to watch. It's not necessarily good for the game because I mean, what the higher level of football does is just win everything, and it's a product of kind of of financial dominance and supercharged finances rather than kind of the same sort of sporting construction over time. It's not going away though. This ain't going away. But and, this is the future. And, exactly. <laughs> this is a question. No, no, no. Absolutely. Um, 
This is the question. Is this the future of football, Lash? Is this the way it will be? Will there be more states looking to sports wash? And if not sports wash, just invest in football. It could be because it's hard to regulate uh, because it's a sort of football is played in different countries. Like one country could go and put in very, very stringent rules for who's allowed to put money into the game. That money will just go somewhere else, uh, you know, it, it, and which is why stuff like a wage cap is incredibly hard to implement in any sort of effective way because it goes uh, across different countries. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, football in general as a sport has a problem where it's addicted to money and it has no culture for asking questions about where that money's coming from. And uh, that's it's it's that will always been that way. And I don't I don't see how it's going to stop being that way anytime soon. And it presents a huge dilemma for fans and people like ourselves who, who love the game and who want to watch the best players for, for sporting reasons because it's the game we've grown up following and it's what our lives revolves around. But it's almost impossible to completely extricate it from the issues off the pitch. So, let's talk about your games of the week. And there are some crackers to contend with, not least, Miguel, the Copa del Rey, yeah. uh, which is taking place this weekend, the that, final. That, that's what I'm going with, which obviously has the extra dimension because uh, Bilbao just lost the 2020 <laughs> Cup la- last week. so We go again. Yeah, we yeah, go again, yeah, lads. So yeah, that, that, that's what I'm going But of course, it's up against Barcelona, who after what had been one of the most trying years in their, in their recent history, now have the chance of a domestic double. Mm. Don't know if they'll keep uh, Messi there in the summer, but yeah, that's a good one to watch. What about you, Lars? Listen, there are two I want to mention. First of all, Atalanta versus Juventus is really interesting because Atalanta are on on good form. Juventus are in a position now where it's they'll probably be fine, but they're not completely in the clear in terms of making the Champions League next year. Uh, Napoli are fifth, just a couple of points behind them. Juventus are third at the moment. Atalanta are one of the teams who are definitely capable of taking points off of Juventus. So that's very exciting. But I have to say... Napoli Inter Sunday night just because we're very very close now to being able to say that Inter are going to win the league and they are almost certainly going to win the league and Conte have made them less crazy and it's not Pazza Inter anymore and but if there is going to be a collapse <laughs> which you always think is a possibility with Inter it's kind of hard to shake these sort of uh, prejudices if there's going to be a collapse it's going to have to start now because they're running out of uh, difficult opponents uh, this season so Napoli Inter Sunday night if Inter don't lose that one, we can almost crown them champions, I think. Mm. I think that is the point where you think that it's not going to go wrong for them. It is going to happen. It's the last sort of major hurdle, I think, in the league, to be fair, in terms of them getting all the way. So, yeah, Napoli-Inter is the the one for me. I do love when you uh, suggest games of the week that have a lot of jeopardy about them. Oh, I love that. Gentlemen, thank you. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.